Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Andrew Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan completed his BS degree at Albany State University, graduating summa cum laude in 1986. He then attended Tufts University School of Veterinary Medicine, graduating sixth in his class in 1990, taking his DVM degree to the Animal Medical Center in Manhattan. He completed a one-year internship in medicine and surgery, followed by a two-year residency in internal medicine. Dr. Kaplan accepted a position as an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin School of Veterinary Medicine, where he taught clinical medicine to fourth-year veterinary students until 1995. He then practiced in both specialty and general private practices in Northern California and New York City until he opened City Veterinary Care in November of 2003. He passed his certifying examination for the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine in 1995, denoting him a veterinary internal medicine specialist. Dr. Kaplan was featured in New York Magazine's Best Vets issue in 2002 and again in 2006 when City Veterinary Care was named the best private veterinary practice in New York City. He's the founder of the Toby Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to eradicating pet overpopulation in New York City. Dr. Kaplan, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Stacey. I'm happy to be here. Before we uh, dive in and start talking about your work in New York City and the Topi Project, I'd just like to find out more about how you got interested in helping animals and why you decided to become a veterinarian. Oh, wow. You're going all the way back. Well, let me just say that um, my family doesn't exactly know where I came from. Uh, you know, I genetically look like them, but uh, I'm a lot different from them. Uh, as far back as I can remember, I've always been an animal advocate, you know, starting back when I was four gravitated toward them, drawn in by them. Over time, starting in my early adolescence, feelings of protecting them and seeing where animals were not being treated kindly or being abused, it sparked a a real strong chord in me. So, you know, it was kind of natural that I became a vet. I tell people my personality and my soul and my career are perfectly aligned. Is there a particular type of animal that you like or all animals? Animals that are alive and breathing are the ones that I like the most. Yeah. And they can be in any species. I'm into advocating for any animal in any circumstance. Uh, I happen to be uh, medically trained for dogs and cats, but I'll do what I can for anything. So I will help mice out of glue traps. I will fix pigeons' broken wings. I will uh, do whatever I can to help animal that needs help. I basically look at it like this. I've been given a real gift to be able to heal And I feel like healing should happen whenever healing is called upon. So that's what I do. I'd really be interested in the discovery process that you've gone through becoming a veterinarian over almost the last 30 years or so. And how did you become more aware of the pet overpopulation problem, the cat overpopulation? I mean, has it always been on your mind as something that you need to do and get involved with? Or when you were involved in private practice, was it more about building your practice? And then over time, you became more aware about the overpopulation issue in New York. I was just sort of wondering how you learned about all of this. 
So very little about my practice has to do with business. The reason why I opened my own practice was I wanted to be autonomous. I wanted to be able to do what I wanted to do. I didn't want to have to explain to the owner of the practice that I wanted to help this animal or that animal or this person who couldn't afford it or this stray dog or this stray cat. So that was really the motivation for my own practice uh, was just the autonomy. But, you know, I've always been passionate about saving lives. It's just who I am as a vet and applying that to the innocent voiceless among us, I'm always passionate about. But as far as, you know, shelters and spay and neuter, you know, the biggest killer of dogs and cats in this country, I know this is a cat specific podcast, but some of my dog work bleeds into it. So um, lack of better word bleeds. Um, So I've always been aware of shelter overpopulation. The biggest killer of dogs and cats in the country are are shelters. I consider that an effect of human indifference. And my eyes, you know, have always been open about overpopulation for that reason. But what was the springboard into getting me involved specifically with the Toby Project and in targeted spay-neuter was the adoption of a dog from our city shelter here in New York. So the dog was named Toby. Well, I named him Toby. It was a chance meeting. There's a long story behind it, which, you know, I think would consume too much time of this podcast, but I think it's an interesting story. But he was labeled as aggressive and unadoptable when he was just terrified. And it was a chance meeting between he and I. I was the only person on the planet that could save his life because I was a vet. You know, they were not going to release him because they thought he was a liability and a risk. But my veterinary license helped them to loosen up a little bit about that. When they saw him with me and I signed all kinds of releases, they let him come to me. And he turned out to be the most brilliant dog I've ever met. He you know, started his life in a terrified way. And I, he told me his whole story on the way home, which I'll share with you. But you know, he was almost a victim of the system that I've known about. And then it got really personal with me with him. And so that's really what caused me to leap into it. And about that time, I was learning about Peter Marsh, whose research has proven that um, targeted spay and neuter is the single most effective form of reducing shelter overpopulation. So it's sort of like the timing was all right. But on my way home with Toby, he pulled me to every woman with a stroller wagging his tail. And he would look inside the stroller. He was only four months, five months of age. And he would look inside the stroller. It wouldn't be the child he was looking for. And his tail would stop wagging. He would walk away. He was always good with the mother. He was always really happy to see a stroller. So this was about a 45-minute walk home. And so we've encountered all kinds of people. And he was a very cute dog. And so there were people just naturally wanted to interact with him. Uh, any man with a dark complexion caused him to recoil. Add a beard and he would submissively urinate and add a hat. It was barking, submissively urinating and recoiling. Wow. And so in his life, before he was at the shelter, doesn't take a, a neuroscientist to deduce that in his home life, he had a, a woman and a child that were very good to him and he loved and a man that wasn't good to him. And that man had a dark complexion, a beard and a hat. And, you know, lo and behold, our city shelter, they all wore baseball hats. Many of the um, employees there were dark complexion. So it was his brilliance that nearly killed him. But he felt like he needed to protect himself from somebody who looked like this. And, you know, throughout his life, he calmed down with that. He never bit anybody. He was always nervous about the beard or the dark complexion of the hat, but he was perfectly fine. And he really was quite, you know, the smartest dog I've ever known um, and the most personable and 
You know, I had him luckily for almost 14 years, but I named the project after him because he was the example and he was the person dog that put the face on this for me. And then, so I naturally just jumped into it and just following Peter Marsh's work, you know, I just joined in doing the thing that would give me the biggest bang for my buck. You know, I started with some clients of mine who were animal advocates. We fundraised, we got to a point where we can buy a truck and we started and that's it. So most of what I do is I sometimes I fill in on the truck, but for the most part, I fundraise and I advocate and, you know, we pay vets who are specialists in efficient rapid spay neuter and nurses and supplies, et cetera. And that's us. And you started the Toby Project when? In 2009. Wow. We probably spayed or neutered about between 55 and 60,000 to this point. We have a truck that we service the public in low-income neighborhoods. We match the highest shelter surrender rates to the lowest income zip codes. And that's where we bring our truck two days a week. And two days a week, we work with ferals with um, TNR certified rescuers. We had a stationary space for feral cats from 2011 to 2018 um, that was donated to us temporarily. The operative word is temporarily, and that ended. So we're currently looking for space again. But in that space, two days a week, we would spay and neuter 25 cats a day. And that was all through other 501c3 cat rescue organizations. From my experience from running a mobile spaying neuter clinic, and we just do cats on the cat mobiles for the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society that I used to run. And you do cats and dogs. So I know that the booking and the scheduling is all very different when you're doing two different crowds. But also the ferals with the traps and the size of the traps on a mobile vehicles makes it even extra special fancy dance. We've not been shy about parking. We've had a local fire department give us a heated bay. They pull out the truck and let us use the bay and do 40 cats there that cats will recover in the bay. Um, Yeah, so we've done a lot of sort of outside of the box to increase the number of feral cats that we can do one physical day because at least our truck isn't structured in a way to really handle those traps very efficiently. You pretty much four to six and that's climbing over quite a few traps in there. So by having an exterior heated space, that really helps a lot. This just came up with our manager coordinator, Lori Berman, who I hope will interview with you one day. She sent me an email saying, we need to get a message out for people on these really cold days about how they keep their cats and dogs warm waiting for our truck. And so we were going through different ways of doing that. We you know, settled on you know, blankets and fleeces, but I would love to hear more about this, the fire department with their heated bay. <laughs> Yeah. This was a town that had asked us to bring our Catmobile in on a regular basis because they realized there was just such a great need. And we had these special designated feral cat days. And then we had regular days where we parked at a bakery, which was great because the veterinary staff loved the bakery nearby. (laughs) So that was for the general public. And we had also had some grant money to be able to really subsidize the cost of all these programs and stuff. But yeah, we certainly can talk about that in greater detail. And I can put Lori in touch with the folks that still are working and coordinating those kinds of situations. You know, your experience, tell me about like New York. I mean, I'm quite comfortable with Massachusetts. Tell me, what are your impressions with regards to community cats in New York and the overpopulation situation, New York and the boroughs? Are you seeing things changing or do you feel like you're just continually swimming against the tide? The latter. It's really hard to determine that. I'm sure it has, it has to be changing. It has to be improving. But the condition is so overwhelming that, as you know, that it's hard to really tell. We just go by faith. And, you know, there's research that shows that this works. So we're doing this by faith. And um, that reminds me to say one thing. I also want to move the project 
much more specifically toward feral cats. And one of the reasons for that, I mean, we have to do community, we have to do dogs and cats that are cared for by people in their communities that are in low-income communities, but I'm not 100% sure that these people aren't going to pursue a low-cost spay and neuter somewhere else, or whether they're going to, would even pay full price somewhere else, and they're just looking for a bargain. So we rely on the fact that somebody would not want to have their dog or cat spayed or neutered in a truck on the street corner in the Bronx if they could avoid it. Mm-hmm. Yet you know, we're in hard times and people are always looking for a bargain. And we know there have been instances where people are definitely bargain hunting. And, you know, they come in with a thousand dollar coat or they come driving up in a $30,000 vehicle. So we know they've got some means, but the feral cats never have means. They are always poor. And so I think when we target them, we have to be you know, 100% sure we are addressing need. And so as I've talked to Lori about, I'd like to move the, the project more in the direction of feral cats. Those are the cats that you obviously can make a great impact with regards to the number of kittens that are outdoors. The more cats you can get sterilized, then you're going to be reducing that number of kittens out there. It's it's hard. It's a really hard balancing act. And I have this thing called the uh, community cat pyramid, where it's really trying to encourage organizations to really look at their cats, the owned cats, as well as the feral cats to make sure that's their first priority to get those cats addressed before you're talking about adoption and sanctuary and barn relocation location and all of those other opportunities. And much of that information that I've gleaned is from Peter Marsh. I've known Peter for years too, and he's just really great at keeping it very simple, but impactful as Mm -hmm. to what we can do to make a difference. And there are certain population rates that we can really look at to be able to determine what sort of impact we can make over the next three to five years through population. And it's not specific science, but there's a lot of tribal knowledge put in there too. And I think that if you can get in there densely enough, then you're going to be able to make an impact. And it's hard because, I mean, New York's huge. It's huge. And I think there's a lot more spay neuter that has to happen all across the nation in order to be able to make a change. Do you ever envision the Toby Project having more than one vehicle on the road? Yes, we did at one point for a very short time. And then our initial vehicle was in such terrible disrepair that it was not going to be cost effective for us to try to repair it again. And then we happened to have um, an affluent donor who funded an entire truck for us. And then we had the space. So we had those two locations. My initial goal was to have a dozen trucks. (laughs) You know, really. Uh, And it was a lofty goal. You know, our funding, we put almost all of it into operations and we're always living on the edge with funding. So if we purchased another truck, then we don't even know if we can operate it right now. So that's our main thing. Hint, hint to everybody listening, donate money to this cause and to us specifically so we can get another truck. Yeah. (laughs) Since you've been on the road for 10 years, one thing that I've learned a lot about or I had learned when I was managing the Catmobile is there's a lot to be learned about the business side of managing a a mobile clinic. There's a lot to be said about no-show rates and just in terms of how to make it all sort of financially work. Do you have to fundraise or are you a revenue break-even model? We're a revenue break-even for the most part with maybe four or five months operating capacity in reserve. Our funding sources are private donations. There are some foundations. New York City has a spay-neuter fund that we bid for every year, and we have won each of the last three years 
two boroughs for $100,000 each, Brooklyn and Bronx. Wow, that's great. And we also work with the city of Yonkers, just north of us. They want to work on their feral cat population. They have nobody there to do it. So one day a month, they pay for us to come up there. And when I say they pay, and anybody who uses us, we essentially just ask them if it's not a low-income pet owners or feral cats, which we all do for free, if it's a special operation that we're doing in a community. So we'll we'll book private Toby Days. There are various TNR organizations in Manhattan, Bronx Tales, Flatbush Cats, Fat Cats, a number of others that Lori will book for a project. We'll go to a certain area and do a spay-neuter-a-thon until we can help get that area under control. Any of these rescue organizations that we work for, we ask them to just pay our cost, which is about $1,500 a day. And for $1,500 a day, we'll spay and neuter 25 cats. That pays for the vet, the techs, the supplies. And so when we do these special projects, it's that. We do the best we can to raise money for reserve. And those are through private donations. I, I'm active with my clientele. So I send out a couple of times a year to my clients. We raise probably about fifty dollars to $60,000 for my clients. I do the New York City Triathlon for a fundraiser for the Toby Project, and we raise between fifty dollars and $75,000 for that. People sponsor me. And, uh, and then you know various foundations that we have some regular donations. So we're never struggling to pay for what we pay for. What we struggle with is expanding. We're doing what we can do with what we have, but we just need to be able to expand. And I think the biggest, the best way for us to expand are the stationary spaces. So we're working with somebody now that we're, we're discussing the use of her space. She happens to be a TNR cat rescuer in Brooklyn, and she has some space and she's open to us using that space. So we would build it out with uh, anesthesia capability and plumbing and we have our surgical tables, we bring them in and you know, we can set up there. If we can set up in various locations where we can just essentially send staff there. So we send the vets and the techs and the supplies. We don't have to repair a truck. You know, there are advantages to right. the truck, as you know, but you know, there's also some disadvantages. We don't have to repair a truck. We don't have to pay for space then it allows us to use whatever we raise toward operations. Agreed. And you don't have to worry about when the truck doesn't start in the morning and all that kind of stuff too. That has happened, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Very much, very much. There's a lot of of different things that go on with maintaining a truck that's different. It's it's the best and the the worst to a certain degree, but there is a lot of flexibility there. One thing I also wanted to touch upon for the folks that are listening that are part of a spay-neuter clinic, either stationary or mobile, you know, one of the big challenges has also been in terms of staffing. We've talked about money being an issue, but are you also finding it hard finding the nurses or other veterinarians to participate in the program? Are you just so networked in that you're able to, you know, at least handle the first vehicle, but would expansion be a concern for you with regards to the human resource side of things? Yeah, I mean, I think the latter, we are dialed in. Lori deserves a lot of kudos for this. She's constantly at it. We have a very good relationship with the ASPCA. And so the ASPCA have vets that are always looking for extra work. So we hire mostly ASPCA vets. We had one of our own for a while who bay neutered her hands into disability. And Mm. so she's no longer really capable of it. But Lori magically works the schedulings so that we can get vets in tech. So we're almost never at deficiency. And then Lori, when when everything else fails, she'll call me and say, hey, can you do Saturday the 22nd? And I'll do the best I can to do it. It's also good for me, I think, to get on the truck every now and then and do that. Although I happen to be an internal medicine specialist and I'm an average surgeon. So I gear myself up because I know I have to do these spays and neuters much faster than I normally do them 
I need to do my 20 or 30 minutes spay and neuter into a 10 or 20 minute. And you know, it works for the first half of the day. And then the second half of the day, I'm worn down. And I like, I don't know how these vets keep it up. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, that's really where we fill in the gaps. And then, you know, there are some days that we have to cancel, but it's pretty rare. And then you're right, expanding, that would be one of the limitations of expanding is, um, is getting the vets. But we've been pretty lucky, as I said, the ASPCA vets who are always looking for extra shifts. And the ASPCA has also reduced their mobile truck volume. And so a lot of those vets are actually a little hungry now. Well, that's great. It's a great problem to have. Yeah. So, <laughs> how does the community respond to having the vehicle in, in their area? I mean, are they like, well, what is this? What are you doing? Or, you know, is the response generally okay? In some areas in Massachusetts, I know, I mean, we've had animal control officers kind of hang with us as a way to just sort of welcome, because the morning check-in can be a little bit stressful yeah. if people are rushing to get to work and all that kind of stuff. So we've sometimes had animal control involved a little bit to help with smoothing things out in the morning. Do you run into some of those issues in New York? No, not not that I've heard. Lori would know better about that, but I don't really think so. You know, we find parking. We are in locations on a regular basis, and so we know where we can park. So it's not that traumatic for us. Great if we would have, you know, animal officers there, but I don't think we've never really needed something like that. But we, we're received quite well from the community. Never do we get any you know, negative feedback directly. Every now and then we get a dog tied to our truck, like, um, you know, one abandoned, which we bring to my office and we find them homes. We doctor them and find them homes. Um, we've had some drop-offs, people that abandon them and don't come back and they come to my office and we figure it out. Uh, overall, I think good. One of the things that I was, I always wondered was whether I would have negative feedback from vets mm-hmm. you know, because we are quote unquote stepping on their toes and their bread and butter. And this is spaying and neutering, but I haven't really heard anything of like course of our existence, you know, of vets expressing some dissatisfaction for us, but you know, these are dogs and cats that aren't going to these vets anyway. They might not ever get spayed and neutered and certainly the ferals, you know, they can't say anything about that. And my answer to them is, hey, you know, join in on this. Give back a little bit. You have a a wonderful career, something you probably always wanted to do. You've been given the gift of being able to heal living things. And your vets are never at risk of starving. You know, we might not be millionaires, but we also survive. And I think we all have to give back some. And I've had that conversation with a couple of them saying, you know, are you really losing? Are you really losing? And can you help? Maybe you can help. Look at it a little bit of a different way. Yeah, we had some pushback when our Catmobile first started and then got to the point where they started changing their opinion. And then it got to the point where they were asking for our business cards. So (laughs) it definitely went from one way to the other. They saw the benefit of that because if somebody called and couldn't afford what they were charging, at least it gave them an opportunity to offer something to the person to be able to get some help. As a licensed board of veterinary medicine continuing education provider, ProVetLogic understands the importance of proper disease prevention and odor control in that cat care environment. ProVetLogic is a leading provider of educational support and product solutions that are designed specifically for disease prevention and odor control in the home and professional cat care environments. To learn more about our cattery products, please visit www.ProVetLogic.com or call 800-869-4789. Check out ProVetLogic today. 
I just want to take a quick step back before we finish up and just ask you again. So you had learned from Peter Marsh, but you never had any desire to take the resources that you were raising and apply them towards an adoption center or something more along that route. You were always focused on a spay-neuter clinic model. There was just no interest at all in that adoption side of things, that rescue side of things, or did you have to sort of say, wait a minute, that's not the most effective use of my skills or my funds? Yeah, a little of the latter, but I have to say we do a tremendous amount of rescue through my veterinary hospital. So we give six to eight rescue appointments a day. I have, there are wow. seven vets in my practice. So it grew from me at one, how many years in? We're 16 years in. So it started with only me and now there are seven. And we provide heavily discounted care appointments for 35 nonprofit rescue groups in New oh, York wow. City. So and their bills are essentially discounted by about 75%. As far as the adoption side of things, animals that come to my hospital, I look at my hospital in a very spiritual way. It's my castle, my temple of healing. When an animal walks through the door, no matter how it gets there, you know, I consider it directed there for reasons that I shouldn't question. And if, as long as they make it through my door, they're safe. And so we don't deny animals because there's no funding behind them, whatever the circumstance is. And so some of those animals need homes. And our director of operations and CFO of the Toby Project, Nicole Rector, is very, very active in the adoptions thing out of my office. That's just our little side gig that we have to do. I have studied you know, the shelter condition. And along the lines of your pyramid, uh, very much interested in surrender prevention programs, low-cost vet care programs, foster care networks, you know, just to keep, basically make the shelters uh, more efficient at what they do. And, you know, our city shelter is doing some things along those lines here. Interesting, I offered my services to them about five years ago. They weren't interested. Hmm. I wanted to actually get involved more in a more intricate way, but I'm not really sure why I think they saw me as a threat, but you know, they were not interested. But I am interested in those things. I also run this very large, busy veterinary practice. And that's why I have to rely on people like Lori and Nicole, you know, to help me with this. And you know, without them, I couldn't, I couldn't do this. So expanding further would be a great dream of mine. You know, I've, I've studied also Nathan Winograd, who is controversial for his own ways. But, you know, this is a guy who says it's always a yes, we can. Yes, we can do this. Like why we find ourselves confronted with a situation and then say, no, this is going to be too hard to do. You know, he tells a story of going into a shelter in Cornell and on day one saying, we're not killing any more dogs and cats. Right. That's it. So we have right. to figure it out. We're not killing anymore. Right. You know? And I'd love to delve into that as well. Um, and it's a, a strong thought of mine after I stop practicing. Well, I think I was thinking about how I was sort of raised in a no-kill world. I mean, it was just, it was what it was because when I joined the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society, they'd already declared themselves a no-kill organization. And I know that can be an alienating term, no-kill. People have thoughts of it one way or the other, but we had our thought of it back in 1994 as being very applicable just to 300 feral cats on the waterfront. So they were going to trap new to return those cats. But I didn't realize at that point in time that that was a strange concept around the country. I didn't realize at that point in time yet that there was a lot of euthanasia going on or other people would say killing going on in shelters and that kind of thing. And 
it is funny. So trying to just convince our society and our culture that this is the way to do it, you know, is considering alternatives. And um, and I think we're definitely doing better now than we were 15 or 20 years ago. But I think that there's still a lot of learning going on. I do find that very fascinating and understanding the language. Well, you, you just trap, neuter, return a cat. That's what you do. You know, it's the given. There's no other alternative. It's just what's done. And that's sort of the attitude that I would like to see happening. And you get them a shelter. And, you know, I mean, everybody's feeding cats out there anyway. So it's just providing them with a few extra things. I always like, just let me borrow that cat for 24 hours and then we'll just give it right back to you. No problems. And that's always been the the impulse that we've been thinking about. I know in addition to your practice, as well as the Toby Project, there's some other things that you have been interested in before we close up. Could you tell me a little bit about some of the advocacy work that you also do in New York? So New York City has become, through the city council, has become quite vocal on behalf of animals in some bills that have been passed. Recently, they passed a ban to prohibit the sale of foie gras on the menus in restaurants here. There's been a ban on the use of live animals in circuses here. There's been a ban on declawing here. And right now, working on one of my biggest pet peeves in the animal abuse world is the sale of fur coats. You know, now it's turning winter and just about everybody I see has a coat with a fur trim. Unfortunately, they don't get to see the down feathers on the inside. So it's hard to have people understand that the down feathers just don't fall off the geese before they're put in the coats. But the fur, it's a, something I'm particularly sensitive about because I have clients that walk into my office wearing their Canada goose coats with the coyote fur trim and some of their dogs have coyote link, such as a husky or a shepherd mix. And they look almost identical but these people have not made the connection. So the best I can, I talk to these people in my office. I explain to them what this is and how these animals are caught in steel jaw leg hole traps. And then they sit with a broken foot, starving, terrified, thirsty before they're killed by the captor in a variety of ways. And I just couldn't reach all of them. So now I put signs up in my window. So in my office, I made four by six posters showing coyote and steel jaw leg hole traps next to a Canada goose coat. I saw people in the park with their dogs. And I say, hey, do you know how they capture these things? It seems like it's too late. But you know what, you know what they say at, at the Canada Goose Store, which I also protest on some Sundays, as they say, the coyote are humanely sourced. So steel jaw leg hole traps, how is that humane? Well, they're sustainable. Sustainable how? Well, you know, we're not impacting their population because there are a lot of them. But let's come back to the humanely sourced, quote unquote. And that's how they sell their product. If people ask, they say they're humanely sourced and that's all it takes. So when I show them pictures, they're flabbergasted. Most of the people are authentically surprised that that's how it's done. But, you know, I always tell people, if you're looking at clothing, look what went into its production before you buy it. Just mind boggling to me that this company is growing and growing and growing, and they should be going in the opposite direction with the education, you know, that's going around about how they capture these poor animals. And it's for fashion, killing these animals so that you can have something that looks good on your collar or a pom-pom on your hat. Anything more infuriating than that? A fur pom-pom on a hat. Anyway, thank you for allowing me to get on my my other platform because that's a huge, big animal advocacy one for me is the fur. Well, folks are interested in finding out more about the Toby Project. How would they do that? So our website, www.tobyproject.org. There's a, a contact email there. So that's the best way to reach us. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? 
No, I mean, other than if I can encourage people to get involved in this, to get involved in animal advocacy in any way. I know this, this is a feral cat podcast, and so definitely do that. If you see feral cats in your neighborhood, don't turn your back. Reach out to local TNR organizations who might know about them, might not know about them, who might add them on to their list of colonies that they're going to take care of. Advocate for animals if you see people abusing them, the feral cats. And that's one of the other things that pains us all, I think, is, you know, these animals are going to live shortened lives anyway in the wild because they're wild animals. They're going to live, what, four to six years. But for people to go out of their way to abuse them is inexcusable. And so please speak up if you see that. Well, Dr. Kaplan, thank you again for agreeing to be a guest on my show. And I hope we'll have you on again in the future. And for our listeners today, I really hope you'll consider sharing this podcast with others and becoming a subscriber. The more that you can share with others, maybe someone will listen to this podcast and will start their own mobile spay-neuter clinic in their own town. I think that both Dr. Kaplan and I would be thrilled to hear that. So please, please do share this podcast with others. And if he can start a mobile spay-neuter clinic, if I can start a mobile spay-neuter clinic, so can you. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 